And Rhino, he's not even an issue. I don't sweat Rhino. Rhino's got him set up on the rope right here. Another edition of the Rhino Wrestling Review brought to you by our friends at ProWrestling.com. I am your host, Dan Rhino. It is good to be back once again. And we are continuing our journey through the history of women's wrestling. We got this started last month, which was Women's History Month, as we record this in March of 2021, no matter when you're listening to it. But we quickly realized that this was going to be much more than just one episode or even two episodes. It is going to be something that uh, is going to require much more of both my time and your time to complete this journey. And it's kind of cool, the timing of this, because we saw another chapter of this journey be written this past weekend, as I said, as we record this in April of 2021 at WrestleMania 37, which was a two-night event in Tampa, Florida. And night one was headlined by not only two women, but two African-American women, which, like I said, is just another, to pardon a bad pun, evolution of how far women's wrestling has come since we've started talking about this when we last episode when we talked about Mildred Burke, Mae Young, and the Fabulous Moolah. And like I said, last time we ended on the Fabulous Moolah, no doubt considered a women's wrestling pioneer, no doubt a Hall of Famer, and no doubt has a less than stellar reputation for her business dealings over the years and her influence on the history of women's wrestling. And Moolah is going to pop up more in this episode as well. I think it's just going to be an ongoing theme just because of how influential and how much she had her finger on the pulse of women's wrestling for three decades for sure as champion. But even before that as a wrestler and a trainer and even after that, when her and Mae Young were making appearances in the Attitude Era in their 70s and 80s. But for the majority of this episode, I want to focus on, or at least the first part of this episode, I want to focus on someone you've probably never heard of, and someone who doesn't get near enough credit for her impact on women's wrestling, and that is a woman named T.T. Paris. And all of the work she did for the legalization of women's wrestling in America particularly in the state of New York. Because let's not forget, less than 100 years ago, actually just a little over 100 years ago, women were not even allowed to vote 
in the United States. And it took until 2020 to even have a female vice president in this country. And we still haven't gotten enough balls to vote a woman in for president. But this is the closest that we've gotten to that in 2020 with Kamala Harris. And it wasn't even until 2007 that female tennis players would receive equal prize money in all the four tennis majors to the men. So this inequity in pay, in jobs, in general respect still permeates through this country today. And even though women have made huge strides in the world of pro wrestling, main eventing uh, WrestleMania 35 and night one of WrestleMania 37, women weren't even allowed to wrestle in the state of New York until the late 1970s. And they weren't the only state. They were just the most noticeable because of the marquee value of the state and specifically the marquee value of Madison Square Garden. But California banned women's wrestling in 1944. Michigan banned it in 1939. Pennsylvania banned it in the late 1940s. And the reasons that they gave were it wasn't considered ladylike to wrestle. It wasn't a good thing for children to see. It was too violent for television. It was a disgrace to womanhood. There was even medical theories at the time that thought that women risked uh, breast cancer because of repeated punches, kicks, and falls. But the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a big step for women's wrestling because becoming a more accepted form of entertainment and by the end of the 1970s women's wrestling was allowed in 47 states in the United States and almost everywhere in Canada thanks to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But New York was one of the holdouts and just like they were a holdout for mixed martial arts until less than 10 years ago. New York's always gonna do their thing New York's always gonna New York and they were one of the holdouts for women's wrestling, but there was a women's wrestler who lived in Brooklyn named Fatila Jalib, better known by her ring name of T.T. Paris. And sometimes she went by Chi-Chi Paris as well, so sometimes when you look up facts about her, but most prominently known as T.T. Paris. And she worked tirelessly to be able to wrestle close to home. And in the early 1970s, she sent letters to the chairman of the New York State Athletic Commission, congressmen, congresswomen, the National Organization for Women, and found out that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would apply to the bias against women's wrestling in New York. And another fun fact that I found is that Jackie Robinson was actually on that New York commission that heard T.T. Paris's case and handed down the decision that she was looking for. And Jackie Robinson was on that committee because a comparison had been made between the states not allowing women to wrestle and baseballs not allowing African Americans in the major leagues until Jackie Robinson. So on March 7, 1972, a bill was introduced giving female wrestlers the right to compete in the state of New York. And on March 8th, less than 24 hours after this, the decision had been made, T.T. Paris wrestled Cora Combs at Gil Clancy's Telstar Boxing Gym in what was the first women's match in New York City since the sport was first banned. So T.T. Paris has that first match. She, of course, sets her sights on the mecca of pro wrestling and the mecca of sports in general. 
that being Madison Square Garden in New York City. But unfortunately, as you're going to find out in this episode, T.T. Paris would never make it to the Garden. Because Vince McMahon Sr. already had Moolah, who was considered the world champ, as we talked about in the last episode, and Moolah's girls, who were the ones to be prominently featured on most any cards. If you wanted women's wrestlers, you usually had to go through Moolah and use her girls. And Vince Sr. didn't feel the need to bring in T.T. Paris, the person who had fought for years in the courts, who had spent her own money to travel to argue her case, who had written tons and tons of letters, the one who had done all the legwork. Vince Sr. didn't feel like he needed to use her because he already had Moolah. And T.T. Paris was quoted as saying, I fought this to be the first one in there, but I never even got a foot in the door. So on July 1st, 1972, a few months after the bill was approved in the uh, New York Assembly, Vince McMahon Sr. booked Moolah against Vicki Williams, and they called it the first woman's match in the history of New York City totally ignoring the T.T. Paris and Cora Combs match that had happened four months earlier. And because of it being at Madison Square Garden and Vince Sr.'s influence in the media, most people just kind of accepted it and went along with it and erased all of T.T. Paris's hard work from history. And as the icing on the cake, Moolah blocked T.T. Paris from wrestling on any of Vince McMahon Sr. shows. So Moolah basically rewrote the history books to make it seem like she was the hero once again and the trailblazer once again when she had not done any of the work to make it happen. And you remember Mildred Burke from our first episode, of course, who also hated Moolah. Well, Mildred Burke sent a letter to the New York Daily News saying that T.T. Paris was the sole reason that women's wrestling was even legalized in New York and that Vince Sr. set things up so Moolah can get the credit and the future payoffs. So at least somebody like Mildred Burke, a trailblazer like her, whether it was because of her relationship with Moolah or lack of a positive, positive relationship with Moolah, or the fact that she just recognized the hard work and dedication that T.T. Paris had put in, at least Mildred Burke was uh, able to recognize uh, what was really going on here. And I don't want to move on without at least mentioning the names of other women, women who fought for the legalization of women's wrestling. There was Rose Roman Hesseltine, who took the Illinois Athletic Commission to court in 1955, successfully suing for the right to work in Illinois. Uh, Betty Nicoli, who worked for years in Kansas City, and then later on for the AWA, who hired lawyers and a public relations firm to try to get the same result in New York that T.T. Paris was working for. So we can't discount uh, all the work that Betty Nicoli was doing at the same time that T.T. Paris was. And in England, it was a wrestler named Sue Britton that got women's wrestling legalized when she won a two-day court hearing in 1979 which led to her wrestling in London's first women's match since the 1930s. So, I feel like I'm often going to be talking bad about the fabulous Moolah on these shows, but history is history, guys. We can't deny the things that happen and how they happen. 
I'm sure to many girls, Mula was a savior. You you do hear po people say positive things about Mula. You know, it cost these girls a high cut of their financial gains, but they had a regular place to stay. They got solid training. They got booked regularly. They got to follow their passion. But we can't just sweep under the rug the dark side of Mula either. Like WWE tried to do a few years ago when they named a battle royal in her honor. And then they took Moolah's name off when these stories started coming out and sponsors like Snickers got pissed off. But history is good and bad. Some of our country's greatest leaders were slave owners. There's carvings of them in national parks. But it doesn't undo the great things that they did. But we also can't ignore the bruises on the fruit either. It's a, it's a terrible burden of a balancing act that we have to do. So... Thanks to TT Paris, women's wrestling can now be held at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. And that is going to lead right into the 1980s and the rock and wrestling connection, which is going to take so many twists and turns. But all roads are going to intersect back to New York City and Madison Square Garden. It is going to be the venue that is going to keep popping up in this story because of how important it is to like i said not only the pro professional wrestling world but the sports world as well so after there was a big drop there was a big drop across the board in interest in pro wrestling in the 1960s and 1970s and not just women's wrestling i'm talking about all wrestling across the board and the 1980s brought us vince mcmahon jr the vince that we all know and love from today one of the greatest on-screen heels of all time. And some would say even one of the greatest off-screen heels of all time because of what he did to mold the wrestling business to his vision. So Vince Jr. buys the company from his dad. He's got this new vision for making pro wrestling more into sports entertainment, which was a huge departure from his dad's vision. And... Vince Jr. wanted to take his WWF product national, which was no doubt going to upset the regional promotions, no doubt going to upset the structure of the National Wrestling Alliance, but Vince Jr. had big dreams and he wasn't going to let anything get in his way. So, as we know, Hulk Hogan is going to pin the Iron Sheik to become the WWF champion at 1984, of course, at Madison Square Garden, and kick off Hulkamania and kick off Vince Jr.'s quest for national wrestling domination, which would later become global wrestling domination, or I should say global entertainment domination, since we're not allowed to say the wrestling word in relation to Vince Jr. anymore, that, that naughty, naughty W word. But the Rock and Wrestling Connection really got started in 1983. Captain Lou Albano, one of the longest tenured WWF employees, one of their longest tenured managers, one of their longest tenured everything guys. Because they had a lot of guys like Howard Finkel and Captain Lou back then that, that kind of just did everything. They weren't just on-screen talent. They weren't just behind-screen employees. They did a little bit of everything at the time. But Captain Lou Albano in 1983 meets a young lady named Cindy Lauper. On a flight to Puerto Rico. Now Cindy Lauper at the time. For those of you people that are not old men like me. Was one of the biggest music stars in the world. 
she had come out with this album called She's So Unusual, and it had songs on it like She Bop and Time After Time, and probably the one you remember the most, which is Girls Just Want to Have Fun on this album. And the album ends up selling 20 million copies worldwide. Rolling Stone has it on their top 500 albums of all time. She was a big, big deal. She was one of the featured performers on that superstar collaboration, We Are the World, that would come a couple years after this. And Cindy and her manager, who was also her boyfriend at the time, meet Captain Lou Albano on this flight to Puerto Rico. And they're just enamored with Captain Lou's charisma and his personality. And they end up asking Captain Lou to appear in Cindy's video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Go back and watch it on YouTube, young people. And he plays Cindy Lauper's dad in the video. And this was in the eventually stratospheric infancy of MTV. When music videos were becoming pop culture necessities and pop culture landmarks. So this was a huge deal for Captain Lou Albano and the WWF as well. Because in 1984, MTV was in more than 20 million homes. They had a younger, they had a more hip audience. And that gelled exactly with what Vince Jr. felt like he needed to grow his company. He felt like he needed to skew younger, and he felt like he needed to tackle that demographic. So Cindy Lauper's manager slash boyfriend pitches the idea of Cindy as a manager for a talent, for a WWF talent, and Captain Lou Albano as the manager of the opposing talent. So Cindy Lauper's manager comes up with this big story and pitches it to Vince and says that we're going to be able to print money with Cindy Lauper on one side managing somebody, Captain Lou on the other side managing somebody. And when you are Vince McMahon and you hear the words print money, you automatically perk up. So Captain Lou goes on Piper's Pit after the girls just want to have fun video had become one of the most played videos of all time at that time and starts into his heel persona, starts taking credit for Cindy Lauper's success, how women have always had a strong man behind them for all their success, blah, 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 blah. And this goes on for weeks until Cindy Lauper finally shows up on Piper's Pit, beats the hell out of Captain Lou with her purse, and now she's a part of a very hot wrestling angle. So several weeks later, they shoot the TV taping where Captain Lou and Cindy Lauper decide to each pick a wrestler to go against each other in their honor. Kind of like Game of Thrones, you choose your champion. And Captain Lou picks the Fabulous Moolah, of course. Captain Lou's a heel, Fabulous Moolah's a heel. She's been recognized as the women's champion, as we talked about in our last episode, for almost 30 years. And Cindy Lauper picks a 22-year-old up-and-comer named Wendy Richter, who was actually one of Moolah's students. And we've got this plan to have this big square off. So Cindy's manager, thinking outside the box once again, goes to MTV and asks them if they want to air the event. MTV says yes, as long as it's done live. And so on July 23, 1984, the brawl to end it all airs live on MTV, of course, from Madison Square Garden in New York City. The event gets a 9.0 rating. 
which at the time equated to 7.5 million viewers. And for those of you that are paying attention to recent ratings as we record this in 2021, 7.5 million viewers is about four times the amount of people that a, watch a regular Monday Night Raw. And at this event, Wendy Richter pins the fabulous Moolah when Moolah does a bridged roll-up and all four of the ladies' shoulders are down, but Wendy gets up her shoulder before the three. So, of course, this finish still protects Moolah because, you know, 30 years with the title isn't long enough to just take the pin clean in the ring. But Wendy Richter is, for the first time in three decades, a new person to hold the nationally recognized women's championship and they made a big deal out of it. they had hulk hogan come out and celebrate with wendy richter they had mean gene okerlin and cindy lopper was there the post-match celebration it is a huge moment for women's wrestling and for their christmas show at madison square garden wwf brings cindy lopper back so this is about five or six months later after wendy richter has won the title with cindy lopper there and that big moment on mtv they bring cindy lopper back to madison square garden for the big christmas show which is still a big thing to this day and they, pre they present cindy with an award for her contribution to the world of women's wrestling and this is also the time where Cindy Lauper makes up with Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou turns face, and I believe it was Cindy Lauper thanking uh, Captain Lou for helping her raise money for, I believe it was muscular dystrophy. So Captain Lou's a babyface now. So, of course, the biggest heel in the company, Roddy Roddy Piper, comes out to break up the love fest. He smashes the gold record that had been given to Cindy Lauper as an award smashes it on Captain Lou's head kicks Cindy Lauper in the face <laughs> this is 1984 guys you got to remember you can't do that stuff today kicks Cindy Lauper in the face of course until Hulk Hogan comes back out to save the day so that was late 1984 this takes us to February 18th 1985 where we got the war to settle the score. So we had the brawl to end it all. Now we got the war to settle the score. Both are airing on MTV. Of course, from Madison Square Garden. With Hulk Hogan, with Cindy Lauper and Captain Lou in his corner, taking on Rowdy Roddy Piper. And like I said, once again, the match aired on MTV. Did big numbers. But this also is the show that saw Wendy Richter drop her title to Leilani Kai after interference from Moolah. So, Wendy wins, wins the title in July. Cindy Lauper is brought back to continue the angle in December. Wendy Richter drops the title to uh, Moolah's protege, Leilani Kai, with some interference from Moolah in February and that leads us to March 31st 1985 which I'm sure is a date that all pro wrestling fans are aware of because that is the date of the very first Wrestlemania again taking place in New York City again taking place at Madison Square Garden and Wendy Richter defeats Leilani Kai in one of the featured matches to regain the women's title again with Cindy Lauper in her corner. I believe this was the match where Cindy Lauper 
hit Leilani Kai with the loaded purse, the loaded purse that uh, she hit Captain Lou Albano with the previous year when they were still feuding. And this was a big deal. This was one of the featured matches at WrestleMania, and the crowd was very hot for it. And that is something that was not very common in the in the 80s, and I would say even in the 90s, even into the early 2000s. You know, I hate to say it, but a lot of people consider when we get to the eventual the the Divas era and before that even a little bit a lot of people considered those women's matches their bathroom breaks but not this one people were on the edge of their seats to this one they really wanted to see it and even to the point that one year later after wendy richter wins that title back she's now a two-time champion she wins it at the the biggest card to that point in the history of pro wrestling wrestlemania the 1986 cover i believe april 1986 cover of pro wrestling illustrated had wendy richter on it and the headline said women's wrestling comes of age is wendy richter more popular than hulk hogan that's a big statement <laughs> and an outlet like pro wrestling illustrated is not going to put a headline like that on their magazine unless there was something behind it some truth behind it and of course she wasn't bigger than Hulk Hogan. Nobody's bigger than Hulk Hogan. You can argue maybe the rocker Steve Austin in the history of wrestling were, were rose to heights bigger than Hulk Hogan. But at the time, it caught everybody by surprise with how popular and how much Wendy Richter connected with pro wrestling fans, which are, which are a huge majority of males. And Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, because of the whole Cindy Lauper connection, Hulk. Uh, there was a cartoon called Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, became a hit cartoon for CBS. And Wendy Richter and the Fabulous Mueller were both featured as animated characters on that show, which was a big deal. But unfortunately, Wendy Richter's run in the WWF ended prematurely. And then, ladies and gentlemen, you may not be aware of this, but there was a prominent wrestling screw job that came 12 years before the Montreal screw job that saw Bret Hart drop the title to Shawn Michaels. We will call this one the original screw job. At the time Wendy Richter felt that she was underpaid. She wasn't getting royalties from the cartoon and the payoffs from the first WrestleMania broke down like this. Paul Orendorf, 20 grand. Roddy Piper, 75 grand. Mr. T, 100 grand. Hulk Hogan, 100 grand. Wendy Richter, $5,000. And at the time, Wendy Richter is averaging about $2,500 a week before her expenses, you know, hotel rooms, travel. That's all on the, the wrestlers at the time. So $2,500 a week before expenses. And she only made $1,500 for that MTV match that drew the 9.0 rating, the 7.5 the million viewers. $1,500 for that match. So Wendy's very upset. She goes to Vince with her complaints. Vince Jr. even says, hey, you've got a point. But nothing is ever done about it. 
So November 25th, 1985, again at Madison Square Garden. Wendy Richter's complaints about wanting to renegotiate her contract had gone ignored, and she was scheduled to defend her title against a masked wrestler that she had been working for months with in Puerto Rico and in other parts of the United States, a masked wrestler called the Spider Lady. And Wendy Richter was scheduled to successfully defend her title. Well, Wendy gets in the ring and immediately recognizes that it's not the regular wrestler under the Spider Lady costume, which was a woman named Glenn Dean. And Wendy Richter did a interview with womenwrestling.org. And her quote goes like this. When I got to MSG that day, Glenn Dean was there, but so was Mula, which was strange because Mula was never at the arena on a day she wasn't scheduled to wrestle. When I went out to the ring for the match, it didn't look like Glenn Dean, who was about 175 to 180 pounds. Before the match that night, I had a conversation with Vince about payoffs. I told him that I wasn't making enough money to justify being on the road like I was. I just wasn't taking home enough money for the amount of work that I had been doing. Almost immediately after the match started, I knew it was Mula because of that style, the low blows and cheap shots. I knew at that time that I had to protect myself in the ring. Mula would try to hurt you, so I knew I had to look out for my safety in there. What I hadn't counted on was the referee being in on it as well. So that's the end of the quote. And like Wendy said in, in that interview, she gets in the ring and she immediately recognizes it's Mula under the Spider Lady costume. And six minutes in, Mula puts Wendy Richter in a small package. Wendy kicks out at one, but the referee counts to three anyway. And Wendy Richter doesn't know what the hell is happening. It's, it's just like the Bret Hart screw job. He gets out and he, he still thinks the match is going on. And Wendy keeps trying to wrestle the rest of the match until Howard Finkel announces Spider Lady as the winner and the new champion. And Wendy really loses her shit now. She, she rips the mask off Mula. She's beating the hell out of her until Mula escapes to the back. And afterwards, Wendy Richter goes straight to the airport, still in her wrestling gear, never speaks to Mula again. And would only speak to Vince Jr. 25 years later when she's invited to be inducted into the Hall of Fame with Rowdy Roddy Piper inducting her. Wendy never wrestled for the WWF again. She did some stuff for Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico and then did some things for the AWA in the late 80s. But she really went into semi-retirement after that match with Mula slash the Spider Lady. Unless a, a payday would pop up after that. And I, it really killed her passion for the business. And she would later say, quote, I have to thank the outstanding wrestlers that I worked with, like Judy Martin. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Her, Joyce Grable, Leilani Kai, Velvet McIntyre, Princess Victoria. They were excellent wrestlers and I learned so much from them. And from Mula, I learned what not to do. End quote. Wrestling is a weird, weird sport, boys and girls. So that is the end of part two of the history of women's wrestling. 
Part 1, we talked about Mildred Burke, Mae Young, and the Fabulous Moolah. In this episode, we talked about the legalization of women's professional wrestling in the mecca of pro wrestling, that being Madison Square Garden, and as a byproduct of that, New York City and New York State. And we talked about the big, big influence of the rock and wrestling connection with Cindy Lauper, Wendy Richter, WrestleMania, Hulk Hogan, and of course, she's going to keep popping up, guys, for better or for worse, the fabulous Moolah. Thanks for everybody for downloading and listening and subscribing. Uh, if you want to hear more current wrestling talk, you can check out me and Doug E. Wrestling and Mr. Main Event on STF Underground every week. It drops every Friday on ProWrestling.com and all podcast platforms. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're not finding it, you're not trying. So uh, check out STF Underground. You can follow that show on Twitter at STF Underground. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Rhino. You can follow this show on Twitter at Rhino underscore wrestling. And like I said, big, big thanks to our friends at ProWrestling.com for making this show happen. I'm enjoying looking into the history of women's wrestling and learning some things that I didn't know before and passing that information on to you. Again, thank you so much for downloading, listening, and subscribing. Shoot me an email, rhinowrestlingreview at gmail.com. Uh, we will probably do another mailbag show coming up in the near future, but I respond to all emails even if we don't get a chance to read them on the air. You don't know how much it means to me that you would take out the time to listen to my little show that I try to put on to entertain you, and I hope that it does just that. So until next time, don't kick out of each other's finishers. See ya! Hey, it's the R to the Y, N to the O, on a block like a tortoise with a slow, on a block like a baker cause I'm picking up my dough, and when I'm in the booth, like